Podcast, and I have another special guest today. I'm with Dr. Sarah Grace Mansky. She's a has a PhD in Global Studies from UC Santa Barbara, and is now an adjunct professor at George Mason. On one side, she's done quite a bit of work for unions. She's written for Jacobin, and on the other side, she's also the founder of the International Society of Blockchain Scholars. Research Fellow at the P2P Foundation and collaborator for Radical Exchange and Holochain. So hi, Dr. Mansky, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you? Good. Um, so for this interview, I really wanted to focus mainly on your paper, your paper called Distributed Ledger Technologies, Value Accounting and the Self-Sovereign Identity. Um, so it was published this year, so it's pretty, it's pretty new. And I thought it was really good, um, and it is the first time I think I've ever seen someone use Marx's capital as a reference in an academic paper about blockchain. Usually, it's you know they refer to Hayek and all the other libertarian sort of um, you know people, <laughs> academics or whatever you want to call them. Um, and so I thought it was really interesting your paper in the. Um, how you were sort of positioning blockchain rather than as like a, you know, libertarian sort of dream for people and instead something more oriented towards um, the commons and something more towards maybe what would be like a socialistic type of vision. So I thought to start off, it might be good um, because to define a couple of different um couple of different um, things you talk about. So you describe valuation as a social pro process and accounting, which is not neutral from the dominant economic ideology, as a social practice. So I was wondering if you could expand a bit on what you mean by these terms and why these two things may be important to people on the left. Well, what we value really determines how we structure society. And so what is very important is to examine our values and not think that they just are natural and uh, consistent and have always been this way, right? So valuation is a social process and what we value is determined uh, in large part by our economic, political, and social institutions and our technologies, right? And my work looks a lot at the what I, is called the socio-technical imaginary. Basically, it's the vision of the ideal, maybe utopian, not in a negative sense, but in a positive way, where we want to go. So when I look at technologies and technologists, I ask them what is your what is your vision of the world that you would want to build towards both you know in five years and i you know 20 years and often um they don't have a very robust vision of where they're trying to go and so what they end up doing is reproducing with all their multitude of design choices the current structural inequalities 
that exists in society right now. So the world that they're building towards is the world we already live in, but slightly different because they have no vision of where they're trying to go. So we end up going in the same direction we're going in. Um, blockchain technologies are interesting in that um, Bitcoin, the first blockchain, does exactly what the creator wanted to do. So he had a vision of uh, circumventing large banking institutions and states from being involved in, you know, monetary transactions. And he made design choices and imbued the technology with agency that would um, make sure his vision came to pass. And it has in large part, right? Bitcoin does those things very well. What happened is people started to think and put their own value on this technology and say, well, I would like to see a world where uh, data is free and where people are able to communicate and govern themselves in a different way. And they're trying to make blockchain technology do that, right? And it wasn't really designed to do that. So when I, you have to separate Bitcoin as a blockchain and then distributed ledgers more generally, where people are, who have a different socio-technical imaginary, a different vision of the world they want to live in, they're building distributed ledger technologies and making design choices that will have more equitable, more democratic, more socialist future uh, come about through the use of that technology. Yeah, I I think that's um, that's a good summary of how I think some people who may be critical of blockchain who are on the left to be able to 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 sort of um, critically analyze sort of the the situations that Bitcoin actually did exactly what it wanted to do, and it had nothing to do really with changing much of the sort of institutional, um, at least the major institutional uh, obstacles within capitalism. Mm -hmm. It just sort of rearranges it a tiny bit. Um, but so then I think it's really interesting because um, in the paper, you talk about a few ongoing projects at the moment um, in the crypto space that um, take a look at the future of value accounting in a different way and maybe in a more positive way. Um, so you mentioned things like meta currency, deep wealth, hollow chain, and common stack, who Jeff Emmett, I actually, one of the first people I interviewed, if you guys want to check that out. But um, what do you think these projects have exactly in common that make you think, like, how would you explain um, to someone that's skeptical about technology that these projects could potentially create some sort of change or like can imagine some sort of change? Like how, how do you see those, those specific projects and like that space in the blockchain world? Right. Well, those projects want to transform how we think about value in the sense that value moves beyond profit and exchange value something, you know, the amount that a particular item can be bought and sold for and moves into, you know, what Marx and others call use value. 
Hey everyone, I hope you're enjoying this interview with Dr. Mansky so far. If you're an old listener, this is not your first rodeo. Welcome back. And if you are a new listener, maybe because you saw the most recent article in Mel magazine titled The Socialists Trying to Reclaim Cryptocurrency, and you may have clicked a link or two that got you to this podcast, welcome. If you are liking this interview and you want to be sure that more content like this can be created then you can donate to my efforts through patreon so if you go to patreon.com slash the blockchain socialist you can donate starting at three dollars a month and it gives you access to exclusive posts um, which occasionally i do um, so if you do you can join other patrons like andrew sam paul matthew kendra and the newest patron jb at the moment, I've spent more on this project than I've ever earned from it due to hosting costs, so any amounts really helps, and it really means a lot. Um, in the future, I'm hoping to do more complex bits of content, maybe through video, just so I can help spread the message that blockchain does not need to be used to further entrench capitalist exploitation if we put our efforts into it. So if that message resonates with you, I hope you'll consider helping out. If you can't help out financially, I completely understand. Other things you can do include subscribing to the podcast on whatever platform that you use, um, including the YouTube channel. So for the Blockchain Socialist YouTube channel, you can also subscribe there if you prefer YouTube. Um, and as well, you can leave a positive rating. So that helps with like the SEO, so search engine optimization type of stuff and like making sure that more people are able to see the podcast. Um, so you can do that, or as well, you can be an active member in the Crypto Leftists subreddit, so r slash Crypto Leftists on reddit.com, and as well join the Crypto Leftist Discord group. So there'll be links uh, to those communities if you haven't found them yet um, in the episode description. As well, I have the link to the article that will be for the article that we're talking about in this interview uh, with Dr. Mansky. It's really good. If you have the time to read it, I highly recommend it. It was super insightful and it really gives a really good um, socio-technical framework for understanding blockchain. And she does a really good job. Um, but yeah, that's it for me. Here's the rest of the interview with Dr. Sarah Grace Mansky. Okay, so in the paper, I contrast uh, capitalist value accounting with commons value accounting. And commons value accounting is different in that it moves beyond exchange value into use value. And it moves beyond um, a system that is based on profit to one that's based on um, regeneration. So... When it comes to human labor, for example, um, capitalist value accounting looks at the unit labor price and really doesn't care too much about whether the job is fulfilling, whether the job destroys the person's body or mind. You know, the 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 human and our humanity is is missing from that kind of value accounting. Marx calls your uh, work a reflection of your species being, meaning a reflection of 
your essential humanity and humanness. Um, in terms of time, uh, capitalist value accounting is makes time um, the continuous is made discrete in the sense that you have hours and you clock in and your whole way of living and being as a human is um, broken up into chunks that can be commodified. And that's just not how humans probably should live, right? You know, we shouldn't have a lunch hour <laughs> and it's gotta be at from 12 to one and you have to hurry up and make sure that your need for a break and feeding yourself and everything else fits within the, this capitalist time frame, right? Life could be kind of a continuous natural flow of interactions um, based on our just natural body processes, right? When we need to sleep, when we need to eat, we just do that when we need to do it rather than when it's convenient for our employers. Also, institutions under capitalist value accounting, they're embodiments of class hierarchies, meaning um, everything is based on. Um, exclusivity and taking public wealth, such as a beautiful park or uh, clean water, and continuously trying to make it private so somebody can uh, make a profit off of it. Under commons value accounting, institutions would reflect individuals' perceptions of themselves and be commonly and democratically run for the betterment of society. Um, in terms of uh, the means of production, how how all the things we need are produced and how value is created. Under capitalist value accounting, of course, capital dominates labor. Capitalists hire workers and um, extract wealth from the land with little accounting for the um, social and environmental, what they call externalities. <laughs> um, all, of the, all of the waste and destruction is displaced onto society at large. So the wealth is privatized and the risks and destructive aspects of this are socialized. Um, Commons value accounting takes into account natural um, ecological limits, thermodynamics, um, and labor dominates capital. So the whole society and logic of the economy is based on one in which everything is measured by do does this economic activity uh, cause humans to thrive in the environment to not just be sustained, but um, to regenerate and be create wealth um, for everybody. And it's it's not a system of extraction, it's one of regeneration. And I'd like to add one thing, um, you know, this may to some, some people seem like this is um, illogical to try to totally transform the system. But I would add that right now we're on a path towards complete social and ecological destruction. So we better do it. Um, it's not 
Um, and so that's why I write about these technologists who are putting all of their time and energy and wealth into trying to build um, what they consider to be a life raft to the next economic world system. In your conversations with these you know, various projects and technologists who um, are working on these projects, I mean, you've mentioned already that generally it seems like they don't have that much of a framework with what they want to be creating. It seems when I read a lot of these type of commons-based blockchain projects, while I think it's like a huge positive step and like I think it's a great like maturing process that absolutely needs to happen, it seems like they don't really, it's not very like, um, I mean, in Marxist terms, it's not a very like materialist way of looking at how to change the actual underlying system because I mean, yeah, I mean maybe they don't don't call themselves socialists and maybe I'm biased and think they should be looking in that type of way. But you know, it seems to me that um, they're trying for something better. But I really wish I could push them to like, you know, have a good framework of mind or thinking about these type of changes. Absolutely. I mean, everybody has, they, they start from where they are, right? And um, it's vitally important that you have a really robust imagination of the world you're building towards. Um, and people who are working in the common space, sometimes technologists come from places of relative privilege. And I would highly encourage them to, before they start building a solution or what they might consider to be a solution, to go and talk with people who <laughs> who are not technologists, who are working on the front lines of you know poor people's organizations, for instance, and try to get a, a collaborative, um, space about what should be built and how it should be designed. You know, sovereignty is, you know, who who has the legitimacy and the means to set the rules in a particular space, right? And so we can't have a commons-based democratic socialist world unless everybody is at the table. <laughs> and a lot of people are not, right? Capitalism is all about exclusion and expulsion. And so we have to work together to try to get everybody to the table on on building the technologies that will work for the future. Um, and so that's why in my paper, I call for technologists to join with social movements to try to build, a, build more robust um, solutions for where we need to go. I would I would say the left always likes to fault pick up pick its own faults out, but the truly dangerous people in this space are the ones who think they're doing something to change the world and have no idea what they're going for. Um, and I've spoken with many of the Ethereum developers who are all about changing the world. <laughs> they have really no idea where they're trying to go. Not all of them, but a lot. And, you know, what I have said to them is, you know, the AK-47 changed the world, right? Explosives changed the world. You can change the world, but if you have no vision of where you want to go, whatever your changes are will be extremely dangerous and destructive. And 
So a lot of the blockchain hype comes out of spaces like that where people think, oh, I'm going to fix um, remittances. I'm going to help refugees. I'm going to, you know, I talked to a developer at a blockchain conference who told me that he created a he wanted to give everybody in Africa a cell phone. So he created a system where people only had to stare at an ad on their phone to be able to access the cell phone. I was like, that's horrible what you did. <laughs> and he was he was like hurt because he didn't he didn't really think about any of the ethical implications of forcing somebody's eyeballs to be staring at an ad. Right. He just thought I'm giving people access to something they need access to. So we need to challenge all of our uh, challenge all of our assumptions, challenge everything before we move forward. Yeah, um, it seems to be like a couple of different obstacles. Like one is, I mean, in general, people who get into new technologies kind of tend to be a little bit more privileged uh, than general society. And then two, in order to create like a project that is popular or well-known, you need to have funding to do it. And a lot of that funding right now is just dominated by venture capitalists and it's dominated, like they want to see a return on investment. Um, and so you have all these people who I think, yeah, for them, the market system or whatever has capitalism has benefited them in some sort of way. And so they think that they just need to get those parts of capitalism to some, to the poor people and then it'll benefit them. Right. Not realizing the entire system is structured so there will always be people outside of it. That, right. You know, you can't ever end poverty, racism, sexism, patriarchy under capitalism. It's just it's a part of the system. Um, if you did that, you wouldn't have capitalism anymore. It'd be something else. Right. So absolutely. Absolutely. Huh. I think there, there was that story. What was it like a bunch of crypto libertarians wanted to move to Puerto Rico and like try to create their own libertarian commune or whatever, which was when you looked at what they wanted to do, it was essentially neocolonialism just with crypto. <laughs> I, I spoke at that conference. I was yeah. <laughs> the lone socialist there. Um, and to be fair, a lot of I mean, there were some bad people there for sure. I yeah. talked to bad people, but a lot of people actually really believed in the the idea that this technology could help people right it's but it's you know the that belief without really uh, a critical understanding of why the people of Puerto Rico were suffering is dangerous right yeah. so um yeah, you have you just really have to be careful when you're designing new technologies, especially really powerful ones, because ultimately, if if you do not from the get go decide that this is going to be used to build a better world, it will be used by large corporations and states yeah. to surveil and suppress people and extract wealth from them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so. Maybe going back to the paper, um, you mentioned uh, one thing I really thought was interesting, that technology represents complex layers of intentions that embody cultural artifacts into technical systems. So I was wondering what to you, what blockchain represents in you know, using that, that type of framework and like 
Yeah. Is it like, you know, if it's a bad, you know, type of cultural artifact or something we don't want, let's say, then how do we do we just then need to not use blockchain as blockchain useless? Like, or you know, what how do you see that? Uh, I think that blockchain, you know, the cultural artifacts that are in at least Bitcoin and a lot of these tokens, um, token blockchains are they represent for instance, if you look at governance, um, a lot of these are pay to play, right? If you have to have tokens to be a part of their governance system. So if you don't have any tokens, you don't count. You don't exist. <laughs> you know, kind of like in the United States, if you're not a, a citizen, you know, you don't you don't get a say or if you don't have the proper papers, you don't get a say in governance. Right. Um, and so they just are reinforcing existing um, systems of who should be who should be allowed to participate and who shouldn't, um, who's a person who isn't. Um, and so so blockchain does that. I mean, I think what you're getting at also is this concept of material agency and technologies have material agency, meaning they um, impact the world and they shape our behavior in it and the possibilities we have in the world. And a lot of people don't think about that, but the classic example is the car. You know, cities are designed around cars and our individual behavior, whether we own a car or not, is massively impacted by this legacy of cars and the fossil fuel industry. You can't most people live in areas um, where you can't just walk to get groceries or walk to get a cup of coffee or whatever. Um, you have to drive there. You can't. My kids can't walk to school. I have to drive them to school. Everything is built around a car and driving um, and the time that that takes, the expense that it takes, um, the the atomizing of the individual where I don't interact with anybody. I'm just sitting in my own car by myself. You know, all of these things are um, impacted by choices that were made a long time ago. <laughs> um, and so um, every technology, it not only impacts the world at that moment, but it continues to have agency. And so we're constantly not only fixing crumbling infrastructure, but um, we're also being impacted by it for decades or millennia. Um, and so what we need to do is, which is why the imagination is so important, is really think about everything we build and all, all the people who are going to have to be impacted by that in the future. Blockchain is no different, and I think that's why the people who are in the common space are building, they're starting with the ideas of distributed ledger, namely that you can have um, uh, distributed information that with transactions that are validated and encrypted um, outside of centralized entities. And they're taking that concept and building something radical and that has a lot a, a deeper vision for a democratic society you don't you think that's a lot of the issues is mostly with the yeah, i guess 
what's happened so far is the token-based blockchains in which you have these sort of play to pay-to-play rules. And I guess you're sort of looking at, you're open to whether it's blockchain or it's just distributed, maybe it will be a different type of distributed ledger. Um, doesn't really matter, but, you know, there's more, it's more about the goals that it wants to achieve. And blockchain may or may not be an obstacle in that. Yeah, I mean, the the idea that Arthur Brock from Holochain gives this example of why Holochain is not one chain for the whole world. You know, he says if you're going to take the temperature in a room, um, it's going to be different depending on where you put the thermometer, right? So the entire world is not, um, you just can't have one chain for the whole world, which, I mean, getting outside of the issues of like, that as the chain gets longer, transaction times and costs for validating transaction just take forever and continuously grow, right? Um, so I think that future distributed ledgers that are more commons-based will be more local and be based on community needs. And so they kind of be micro chains or nano chains so you also talked about uh, building the building of a technological commonwealth. Uh, so I think it's a pretty interesting idea. But I was wondering if you can explain what you mean by this. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I came up with this term global technological commonwealth to describe how technologists are kind of coming to an agreement that um, their shared imaginary is a it's a post-capitalist society you know where communities that have mutual interests they cooperate and they construct new institutions and new regenerative economic uh relationships and so the participants who are trying to build this this commonwealth are they share they share some principles and you know, I list the principles in the paper. The first is that technological design should incorporate planetary boundaries. That anytime you design something, it should not, um, it should benefit the planet rather than destroy it, which is a, a big challenge for technologies. That uh, technological design should be modeled on natural biological systems um, in the sense that they should be redundant and not overly complex so um, they can be flexible and useful for multiple communities they should all technological design should also enable the redefinition of value um, which i talk extensively about in the paper uh, and i give an example of distributed value accounting which takes into account um for instance, care uh, care value and reproductive labor, the, the unpaid labor of making sure everybody's doing okay and raising children and having healthy relationships. That labor is uh, massive and it largely falls on the backs of women in the world and is undervalued, under-recognized, under-compensated. Um, that technological design should enable radically democratic coordination and governance and 
we should be able to now organize and cooperate more efficiently and easier. And distributed ledgers allow for you to trust the software rather than having to personally know individuals and trust them. And that was one of the revolutions in this new technology is the ability to place, they call it trustless software, but really you're trusting the software to make sure through reputation systems that the person you're dealing with is not uh, a bad person, an untrustworthy actor. And technological design should allow for the future growth of a cooperative commons as a desirable future. So what we need to do is take everything that has been privatized, uh, including the land, the air, the water, um, our human labor, um, or the natural world, and bring it back into the commons and redesign all of our institutions so that we can have human flourishing um, in a way that's never, you know, existed really yeah. <laughs> uh, in an industrial system. So it's a big challenge. And I, I think the youth are up to the task. I'm, I'm, I'm happy when I see, you know, groups like Extinction Rebellion and other, I mean, before them, Earth First, really stepping up to the plate and saying, you know, we we can't just keep going. There are no liberal policies right now that can both benefit capitalism and the planet. It's just not going to happen. The Green New Deal doesn't go far enough. Um, and so, yeah, it will take a massive global social movement. And technologists are a part, big part of that. Um, so... I have to be optimistic. So do you mean that, I mean, I guess the one option is nationalization, but then other options are, I guess, a more nationalization. I don't know if that's technically within, like, is that a, a commons approach or is that different? Well, this is a debate and it's not settled, but there is, you have to have the appropriate relationship between the global and the local and, um, you know, nationalization under our current economic system would just be probably negative outcomes for everyone. Uh, it's right now, at least in most of the world, you have corporate capture of the state. And so if the state decides to do nationalization, it's just going to benefit people who are already elite. That's yeah. Okay. Um, Polo chain are trying to take things that are private, like the internet, and disintermediate them, distribute them. So if Polo chain is successful in taking the internet away from large corporations, I think that would be one example of where the movement might go. Mm -hmm. Looking at various sources of value and saying, how can we break that up and make it commonly owned and held by all the users? Yeah. So maybe this is a good um, opportunity because I wanted to ask as well, because without going into too many technical details, right, uh, within DLT world, 
Um, you have blockchain, which is considered data centric um, and which is centered around data. Um, you can look it up if you don't know exactly what that means. And then you have Holochain, which calls itself agent centric. Um, so I guess this sort of alludes to what you've been saying, how um, maybe blockchain is sort of considering it. It's sort of looked at as one universal chain, whereas uh, and that's sort of the data centric approach, whereas the agent centric approach is a little bit different. Um, so I was curious what you thought the the definitive differences between these type of approaches when it comes to value accounting? Right. Well, I mean, agent-centric design is is more about local needs and in, local individual needs. So, uh, for instance, anybody could try a new grammar like tweets, likes, five-star ratings, create something without needing permission or support from others. Um, anyone who wanted to communicate with other people could do so. Um, agent-centric means um, that it's essentially the people who are using the system should be the ones who design it. And um, mm. that's difficult with blockchain because it's just one chain generally. And so you, it's very resistant to change because um, you know, that's it's just not the way the software is designed. So, you know, having an agent centric system, it's more responsive. Um, and yeah, so I don't know if I answered you, your question. But. <laughs> you're, you're, you're a little bit more um, hopeful about the agent centric approach, it seems, than maybe the data centric one. I'm not, I mean, depending on the situation, I guess. As well. Look, technology is useful for for who the person who creates it. So if you look at yeah. Ripple, you know, I mean, it works great for large financial institutions. You know, um, that's never that technology is never really going to work for building up a cooperative movement. You know, yeah. so the people who like at Holochain who really in their heart are trying to build this new world um, if their software is successful. And it looks like it will be because they're testing um, Holoports right now uh, and they have like 6,000 nodes in the new network. I think that um, then they will be successful with it, the technology doing what they, they want it to do. Yeah, I, I'm pretty curious to see how, how it ends up happening. Um, so it does look quite promising. Um, so you mentioned as well in your paper that DLT infrastructure would be able to protect people's autonomy while also conducting joint work and collective action. I think you mentioned it earlier as well. Um, I was curious if you had any particular examples that you would like to use of that. Because I think if you if you say that to, you know, someone on the left, someone, they have ideas and like what that is in their own sense, but what does that mean if you involve some sort of DLT infrastructure? What does that, what does that look like? Well, um, I mean, an example with the internet is if a corporation like Facebook is, if you're using their platform, they can look at all your photos and read all your messages and know who all your friends are. 
But if you're using a distributed ledger version of a Facebook-like system like Punto, um, then you own your data. So, um, you know, that's they refer to it as self-sovereign identity when you as an individual have control over your identifying information. So it's it's really like it's not so much I mean maybe it could but um, it's not so much maybe like going on strike using DLT but creating fundamentally different um, infrastructure and institutions um, that either compete or combat against sort of the now type of corporate centralized structures that at the moment we may be reliant on sure feel like we are yeah no we definitely are um but i mean we could i think people haven't figured out all the ways we can use this technology right when the internet first was developed people had no idea of all the possible things people would use it for right so once uh humanity gets a hold of this i think we'll be shocked by the creative uses people put it towards and so maybe they'll be able to use it to go on strike i don't know (laughs) um yeah so it's uh it's i think it's still relatively early in and in the i guess evolution of how how this will be used Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so in your paper as well, you talk a lot about post-capitalism. Um, when you talk about post-capitalism, or at least when I think of post-capitalism, I think like, oh, well, that's socialism. Like that's that's what it like basically is. But maybe, you know, people don't like to say the word socialism because of one reason or another. Um but is it fair to say that post-capitalism should look like some sort of socialism or else, I mean, the other is, I guess, apocalypse almost? <laughs> you know, I don't know that we know what it looks like, to be honest. Occasionally mm-hmm. when I go to protests like Occupy or the very first Occupy, which was the Wisconsin uprising where I'm from, where the people of the state took over the state capital for months on end. Um, and there was all this mutual aid activity. Um, and everybody's need, everybody pr- tried to provide for everybody else's needs. Um, only in those moments have I actually had a glimpse of what a future world might look like. And so it's very hard for me to say to say what it'll look like, but um, I feel like, um, you know, the reason why I don't call it socialist is because I don't, all of the previous societies that call themselves socialist, I don't think it'll look like that. Um, And in part because we have these new technologies that enable different types of governance and representative structures, that are definitely more peer-to-peer, more locally based, and more cooperative, right? Um, and so, so yeah, I guess I guess I think that the 
we'll finally all be able to breathe <laughs> once <laughs> we get there. Um, but I, at this moment, I, I just don't, I don't know. You can see little glimpses in places, yeah. but maybe like, um, at least for for how long it lasted, the Chaz, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone in Seattle. Yeah, things like that. You know, if you've ever been to a protest, you know, you get the sense of like collective effervescence. Like we all finally have control over our own lives, even if it is for this 30 minutes here. Um, and so, yeah, we need to start building institutions that make things like that more permanent. And a big part of that process is grabbing a hold of value creation, the means of production, and <laughs> making it ours. Um, and it's really interesting now that everybody is at home working at home from a computer you know, labor is no longer directly under the super supervision and control of capitalism, capital, either in a building or some other way. And so I'm wondering, will people start to, you know, rethink their their own place in this value creation process? Um, I don't know. I sure hope so, because they should realize that they actually only probably need to work two hours a day to get their work done. So why were they sitting in an office for eight? You know, things like that, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and that um, the labor of, of essential workers, you know, teachers, everybody else, is should be compensated higher than it is. And um, the work that moms and dads do at home is essential labor and should be compensated, right? You can't have moms at home with no childcare because they can't do work for corporations if they don't. So I, I, I hope that this moment is causing everybody to reimagine their, the future for themselves and for the planet. So who knows, maybe six months from now, we might see something amazing just because of everybody having to go through this experience together. Yeah, I can say, yeah, at least anecdotally, definitely way more of my friends are like, we should be working less days <laughs> or less yeah. hours, you know. Yeah. Um, do you think that at the moment the left in general has much influence in this sort of post-capitalist Dow commons space? Um, and if not, do you think we can? And how would you propose we go about doing it? Um, I don't think the left has much space influence in the current fintech blockchain, Silicon Valley space. And I don't even think the left should try to go in there necessarily. Um, I think we should organize alternative conferences that bring together both technologists in this space who would be friendly with social movement organizers who are already doing the work on the ground that needs to be done. Uh, that's what I would like to see happen. Yeah. Do so you think we shouldn't, you're more on the side of uh, creating our own sort of spaces rather than trying to influence or like trying to fight against 
the right. type of conferences I guess you went to uh, yes. in Puerto Rico. Well, I, I, I'm always invited to these conferences, you know, they find <laughs> me out and stuff. Um, and there, there will be a couple people afterwards who will come up to me and be like, yeah, that's what we should be doing. Right. So there, there is, um, there's interest in those spaces, but really it's, you know, it's the classic conundrum for the left. Like, do we try to get involved in the democratic party in the United States or do we create our own party? Right. And it's kind of like, Anybody who goes into an existing institution as an individual or small group does not change it. They get changed. Right. So I feel like we need to create our own space and invite people in, be evangelical in the sense that we should go to these conferences and say, here's our message. Here's what we're doing. You should come with us. But if you're not going to change most of the people who are there. Yeah. Oh, that's um, yeah, something hopefully in the future we can uh, organize and hopefully you can come and Let's do speak it. to. <laughs> I'm there. I'll be there. Nice. I'll keep you. I'll keep you on the list if I can <laughs> get all these people together. Great. Um, all right. Well, thanks so much. I don't want to keep you for much longer since you got to go. Thank um, you. If you guys want you guys well actually you should the paper is called distributed ledger technologies value accounting and the self-sovereign identity